This is the Education Gadfly Show. Uh, we'll probably have all the listeners on the show by the time it's uh, at some point or another, by the time by the time we wrap up. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, David Griffith of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, filling in for Mike Trilly here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our distinguished special guest for this week, Erica Greenberg. Erica, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of the show. I'm always surprised that we have listeners. Uh, wonderful to meet another listener. Uh, we'll probably have all the listeners on the show by the time it's uh, at some point or another, by the time by the time we wrap up. Uh, also joining me uh, is uh, Brandon Wright, our distinguished, uh, what what is your policy Edit- director? Editorial director. Editorial director. Basically the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, gracing us with your presence here in D.C. It's been a while. Yes, true, true. Good to be here. Uh, and, you know, it's been a, a great week for humanity, I feel like. the uh, Spoiler alert, the White Walkers lost, so uh, I'm in a good mood, and the weather's beautiful. And now it's time for Education Reform Update. All right, Erica, we're here to discuss your uh, recent research on preschool participation among children of immigrants. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about what you looked into and what you found. Great. Uh, So I'm so glad that you're highlighting this important issue. Children of immigrants are a growing share of all of our young children, and they're now one in four young children, uh, folks entering kindergarten and elementary school in the U.S., um, so they're going to be a critical share of our future workforce and, and citizenry. Um, and so they're really a, a really important population to focus on in, in our research. And, and uh, we've known, is that really true? There Are they they're one in four? That's right. One in four U.S. kindergartners now is a child of an immigrant parent. That's an amazing statistic. Yes, yes, absolutely. They're incredibly diverse and we can get into all of the ways in which they are diverse and how that influences some of their choices about uh, preschool and later education. Um, but they are just this critical share of, of U.S. students now. Um, and so schools and school districts and states are working to uh, kind of reshape some of their services to make them appealing um, and to make them uh, most beneficial to, to children of immigrants. Uh, we know from uh, 30 plus years of research that children of immigrants are less likely to enroll in center-based preschool experiences, the kinds that really get kids off to a good start uh, and prepare them for success in school and beyond uh, than children of U.S.-born parents. And so what our work has been doing over the last five years is to try to understand why that is and to look at some of the programs that are beating the odds in terms of enrolling children of immigrants. And so we started some of this work in Silicon Valley in 2014, a place of incredible wealth and innovation, but a place that also uh, didn't have services to to meet the needs of all of their immigrant families and uh, didn't have offerings that were always appealing to to immigrant families. Uh, And so we looked at some of the barriers to access there, and then we thought, wouldn't it be great to go to some communities that are are really appealing to families that are having these high rates of participation among children of immigrants, getting them off to the strong start? And then we wrapped up with a national look at participation patterns. Okay. Uh, you said a lot there. Uh, let's let's back up just a little bit. Is there, you know, there's obviously a broader debate about uh, sort of the effectiveness of, of pre-K and who it's most effective for. Uh, is it fair to say that uh, children of immigrants and in particular um, kids who, who may not speak English in the home, do they benefit more from pre-K in particular ways? Is that a fair summary? Yes, absolutely. They, they gain benefits that are at least equal to or greater than children of U.S.-born parents. Um, we have a long line of research showing this, and we did that in our own study using some nationally representative data and saw that children of immigrants uh, had uh, substantial gains in math, uh, uh, reductions in in-grade retention and Im- improvements in uh, IEP uh, receipt at kindergarten entry and that children of immigrants had greater reductions in in-grade retention than children of U.S.-born parents after uh, participating in preschool programs. And I suspect 
that uh, immigrant families are more likely to be low income than non-immigrant families? Is that and then compared to non-immigrant low income children, are immigrant low income children uh, less likely to enroll in pre-K? That's right. That's been the historic pattern. Um, and so so immigrant families tend to be lower income um, and to tend to have greater need. But it's also important to remember that some immigrant families are incredibly affluent. Sure. Uh, and that was really key in our Silicon Valley study. <laughs> so we had to remember um, that the, the children of, of executives at Google are a really important population. We want them to get off to a strong start as well. Um, but that children from low-income immigrant families are the ones who may be most marginalized and could experience the greatest gains from these programs. Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was just trying to wrap my head around exactly uh, um, to what extent they are less likely to enroll, uh, and also to what extent they sort of benefit, uh, especially um, compared to similar income non-immigrant children. Um, yeah, so we know that the, the enrollment gaps we've seen historically can be entirely explained by income and education level. Okay. So it's not this kind of uh, this old story about parent preferences and, uh, and and those kinds of things explaining these gaps in access. It's really about um, families' characteristics and the, and the appeal of programs to these families. And so what we were able to do going around to four communities around the country that were sort of beating the odds in enrolling children from immigrant families is that when you've got affordable, really appealing, sort of joyful and beautiful programs that immigrant families are, are willing to enroll, they're happy to enroll, and they're getting great benefits for their children. Great. Okay. And and so what, I mean, talk a little bit about barriers. Uh, it's sort of one of those words that people use, but I'm not entirely sure what it means, right? Specifically, what, what is a barrier? Is it language? Is it, is it um, I mean, I can imagine that in some cases it might be fear of deportation or is that is that not accurate? No, there are, there are a range of barriers all the way along the pipeline. And as you might imagine, they vary across communities and states, depending on the context, uh, both early care and education and education context and immigration policy and enforcement context. So sometimes it's an information barrier, simply knowing where the programs are. Uh, sometimes it's a transportation barrier, not having uh, enough uh, programs in immigrant communities. Uh, a lot of times it's language interpretation and translation um, so that it's difficult for families to understand and to gain trust in these programs, especially with these their young learners, um, where safety and, and trust really can be a huge concern. Uh, sometimes it's about the barriers uh, that come from the enrollment process, that uh, there are numerous forms to fill out and uh, health checks and vaccination records and other things that have to be provided. And that can be a real challenge for some families. Um, and then it's it's sort of participation the everyday uh, kind of getting kids to school, fitting uh, preschool into the family routine, uh, making it worth their while by seeing uh, the benefits and, and uh, enriching teacher-child interactions and, and, and kind of great uh, things that can come from preschool. Uh, so when, once all of those barriers are reduced, we see uh, much higher enrollment. All right. So let me let me ask the Mike Petrilli question here because I got to, right? <laughs> you, you know, I, you know, it's coming, right? So, uh, I mean, should we be concerned about fade out here, right? I'm guessing that you weren't able to track them, you know, necessarily all the way through college or, um, and, and I guess a related question for me I'll ask too, right, is I think you mentioned math, but I mean, it seems like they should, the most obvious benefits are, are language, right? Or, or is it that, uh, that they're doing like, math in preschool, right? That? You aren't really doing math and sure. Yeah. Early you math are? activities. Maybe you weren't, yeah. Brandon. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Numeracy right. patterns, all these kinds of topics. All right. yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I mean, are they, I, I don't have kids, obviously. <laughs> is, is, is language, uh, sort of the, the, the pathway through which they access math uh, or, or, you know, I mean, t talk to me a little bit about like, if there are specific, what we know really about the specific benefits. So we know that a lot of immigrant families are looking for public preschool programs programs 
um, to be that first entry into English. Um, and and that's, that's certainly a value that they may go into um, enrollment with. Um, but from there, it's, it's all the core content that exists in high-quality preschool programs for all children. It's early literacy, early numeracy, uh, social studies, early science. Uh, the programs that we visited in these four communities were sort of enrich, enriching all the way around um, and were the kinds of programs that any family would feel lucky to, to be able to enroll in. Um, I think the question about fade-out is one that the field is grappling with generally. Um, and we didn't look at long-term impacts of these programs um, on, on children of immigrants, though some other studies have. Um, some of it is a question of catch-up from the children who didn't attend preschool for, mm-hmm. for any number of reasons. Um, and some of it is the fact that uh, elementary experiences are going to condition how those gains from preschool are sustained or not and under what conditions. Uh, we do know that in uh, many communities, high-quality preschool programs are followed by kindergarten programs that might be repeating content because kindergarten teachers kind of have to to catch up those other children. Um, or, or because uh, they're not aware of what kids are coming in learning. And so uh, if we want preschool programs to have maximum benefit, it's about uh, reforming the early elementary grades as well. Great. Okay. Uh, that's all I have for today. Brandon, you have any more questions? Yeah. Um, okay. So in terms of these high quality programs, how do they generally look? I, I have a niece that just got out of preschool and I was surprised uh, when she was three in her first year of preschool, she only went something like half a day, two days a week. And then when she got into her second year of preschool, it ramped up a bit, but uh, it wasn't until sort of kindergarten where she was there full time, five days a week. Uh, is that similar to what are considered high quality programs for immigrant children? Um, and if so, I was, I was, I was surprised by how limited it was. And it just seems like such a preschool can only have pretty minimal effect, at least in the first year. So are these Are these programs different? There's lots of variability across preschool programs generally. So that's the first thing to remember. Um, The the programs that we visited um, that really were beating the odds showed some of that variability. So some were half day, four days a week. Some were full school day, five days a week. Uh, A lot of the question was about resources and uh, and, and fit with the community. Um, but we know from the broader literature that a full day of preschool is going to yield greater benefits than a half day of preschool. Uh, It's about making the finances work. Yeah. And that was kind of my next question. Uh, what in terms of what you've seen uh, is generally the best way to fund uh, this expansion, these efforts? Um, is it state? Is it local? Is it federal? What what? Uh, so most of the private? investments are coming from states, but okay. the four communities that we visited uh, had this kind of richer funding atmosphere. So some were braiding in federal funds from the Head Start program or from childcare subsidy. Uh, they both have. They all happen to be in communities that uh, had rich phil- philanthropic sectors. So Dearborn, Michigan, had a lot of investment from Ford. Uh, okay. Houston had uh, foundations they could draw on from uh, from oil uh, revenues. Uh, Atlanta had uh, Coca-Cola there. And so there were public-private partnerships. There was braiding and blending of funds. Uh, school districts would add on to state investments. Uh, so it was very clear that uh, that resources were really important for making um, these kind of uh, joyful, uh, attractive, uh, desirable programs. Um, and so that's something that other communities are going to have to look to and tr- trying to replicate their outcomes. And finally, who's, who's generally driving these efforts, these expansions? Is it generally from sort of the top down, from the governor's office? Is it is it grassroots? What? It's a great question. There are different histories in the different states. Um, often it is uh, kind of a pioneering governor or state legislature who's wanted to expand these programs. Uh, it's local communities appealing to states saying, hey, you've got a program, but we don't have enough resources and we've got this long wait list and families kind of wanting to get in the door. Um, so there have been different trajectories, but I think the, the sort of key thing is that expansion uh, is, is always met with uptake from parents and, and the parent the kind of successive programs build on each other. Okay, interesting. 
All right. That's I think I that's, yeah, that's I think all that's I all the time we have for today. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us, Erica. Uh, and uh, please continue doing your fantastic work on this important issue. Great. Thanks so much. Uh, up next, Amber's Research Minute. All right, welcome back. And now it's time for Amber's Research Minute. Subbing for Amber this week, uh, Adam Tyner. Adam, welcome. Thanks. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Uh, Adam, good. yep. Adam's still recovering from the beatdown that my Trailblazers gave uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder just a few days ago. Oh, no. I never should have mentioned you this. You really shouldn't have. have. It's Yeah, it's going to come up again now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I was rooting for them last night, but they, uh, they couldn't yeah, the close the, the deal there against, against Denver. <laughs> uh, I know. Playing basketball a mile high doesn't actually sound easy now that I think about it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, what do you got for us today, Adam? Well, this week we've got a study on the effects of teachers' unions that was just published in the journal The Review of Economics and Statistics. It's a study from several researchers who've been affiliated with the University of Connecticut, including one of our emerging education policy scholars, Josh Hyman, and it is titled School Finance Reforms, Teachers' Unions, and the Allocation of School Resources. The paper looks at changes in school funding over the last several decades, which was a time when states started to remedy the huge funding inequities that result from local funding of education by allocating state funds to poorer districts. So a lot of districts start getting a bunch of state funding, and the question is, how do they spend it? So the more naive among us might think, well, there's a new dedicated funding source, so funding for schools must rise, right? That's what Brandon thinks. We hear state lottery (laughs) advocates make that claim all the time, how the proceeds are earmarked for education or something. But in reality, since the since the other funding sources for for education aren't dedicated, funding doesn't necessarily have to rise at all. And in many cases, they can just take the money that they were spending already, give it back to the taxpayer, or spend it on something else. So the authors of this study had an interesting hypothesis, which is that strong teachers unions, and they use a measure of teachers union strength that we developed here at Fordham, but teachers union strength would play an important role in this process by getting the increased funding to go to education in general and to teacher salaries in particular. Then those differences in funding might impact student achievement. They actually end up finding evidence of all of that. So let's move to the findings. And for a few of these findings, I'm going to be quoting the paper directly. First, the findings for education spending. The strength of teachers' unions really did play a big role in whether state aid actually went to education. School districts in states with the strongest unions increased education expenditures nearly dollar for dollar with increases in state aid. But in districts in states with the weakest unions, local funding fell, and education expenditures increased less than 25 cents for each dollar of state aid. So then, for the additional money that was spent on education, unions again played an important role. Districts in strong teachers' union states allocated more of the additional spending towards increasing teacher salaries, while districts in weak union states spent the money primarily on teacher hiring. Also, spending in non-instructional areas like capital outlays, administration, and classroom support increased more in strong teacher union states than in states with weak teachers unions. Finally, and I'll end with this, they find that the larger expenditure increases in strong teachers union states translated into larger impacts on student achievement. 
10 years after the, a given reform, student test scores in low-income districts had, ridden acro- had, had risen across the board. But in those districts in weak teachers' union states, uh, students scored 8% of a standard deviation higher, whereas in strong teachers' union states, the increase was double that to 16% of a standard deviation higher. So really big effects of teachers' unions. Okay. Uh, lots to unpack there. Uh, let me just start with sort of a, a, a methods question, Adam. I mean, those two sets of states that you just said at the end, uh, how do we, I mean, how are they trying to sort of account for the potential differences between them, right? I mean, I can imagine that states with uh, strong teachers unions might have had different experiences than states with weak teachers unions uh, in the wake of the recession, right. right? Right. So there's a couple of things that they do. I mean, one is they just, you know, use a bunch of controls to, sure. to handle a lot of that. But um, the other thing is that they're a little concerned that, uh, I mean, one of the threats to the validity of the study is that maybe the teachers unions, the power of the teachers unions is actually what is um, driving the the policy changes at the state level, uh, level and that um, they actually kind of try to test this a little bit, and they really don't find evidence that there's a strong correlation between those, uh, the, the, the strength of the teachers' unions and the way that the, the, the policies that the states adopted. Um, but it is, is definitely one of the threats to the, to the validity of saying that teachers' unions had this kind of causal impact. So, this is pretty topical from a Fordham standpoint too. Mike actually just wrote about differences in teacher pay over time last week in the Gadfly. Uh, right. My biggest question coming out of that was, well, what did these differences, what effect did they have on achievement? Um, it seems like right. this, this study somewhat answers this. And interestingly, Checker uh, Forever has uh, sort of called for less new staff and better paid teachers. Um, you said earlier that the that the weaker union states hired more staff and didn't raise salaries. Um, so did the did the study at all look at sort of um, staff to student ratios or like number of staff uh, in each yeah. school per state? And did did the weak union states therefore sort of have more staff? Exactly. So the the weak union states, well, they they just increased. Uh, funding less anyway, but with the fu- funding that they did have, they tended to pursue a strategy of just having more support personnel and, and smaller class sizes. So you have more teachers, but you're still paying them, you know, the same. Or as Mike found in his study, I mean, some of these places they were actually making a little less money in inflation-adjusted uh, terms than they were a few de- decades ago. So um, it's really, it, you're right. It really ties into. The question of like, how should we be allocating new money towards schools? Should it go, should we maybe just be paying teachers more and getting a stronger pool of teachers? It's a, it's a good point. So, so just to be clear, Adam, were they able to separate the impact of more money from how the money was spent? Uh, Well, they're, they're kind of separate dependent variables. So it's, it's like one dependent variable is how much, what's the difference in the amount of money that is spent on education. And then another one is like, what is the, uh, the new allocations of money? What are they actually going to? Okay. Gotcha. So, but I mean, in terms of the impact on sort of student achievement, it's not, it's not clear which of those things mattered more. Uh, that's a good point. I, I'm not sure how they how they're able to tease that out, um, but they they do say that the the places with the strong teachers unions, the, at least the low income districts with the strong teachers unions, 
did have those stronger impacts. But you're right. I'm I'm not exactly positive how they how they're able to trace the the causal pathway the way that you're saying. I mean, what? Yeah, I mean, what's most interesting to me, right, is like the fact that it sounds like unions use sort of their political clout or power for for higher uh, pay as opposed to lower class sizes, right? I mean, I don't know if yeah. I had a. I think that's what they're saying. Yeah. yeah, I didn't have a prior on that necessarily, but it's a little surprising. Yeah. Um, and it's it's surprising again from like a Fordham topic standpoint that this thing that we've wanted sort of institutionally to an extent at least certain people here uh, for so long, which is um, less staff, better paid staff, uh, <laughs> actually yeah. happens to be most common in strong union uh, yeah. states, and that this approach improves student achievement. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. Are you envisioning a, a, a future? Kind of harmony between Fordham and the teachers unions. Yeah, right? I mean, we're missing, we're all missing the boat here. I mean, look, I think I, I suspect that I speak for a lot of reformers when I say that I'm often conflicted about spending increases because I would like our schools to be well, like robustly funded, right? Like, I, I believe that's a place we should be putting a lot of public dollars. I, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to drown the, the government in the bathtub here. Um, and, but at the same time, it, you know, I also think there are reforms that should happen. Uh, and, and so it's hard to know exactly when to hold the line and say, yeah. no, no more money, right. Until we get reforms. Um, and then there's the whole political economy angle, right. Which is, you know, on the one hand, the, the, the unions are generally opposed to things that reformers tend to stand for. Um, but on the right. other hand, like they, they lobby for education, right? They do. Yeah. And so I think it is a challenge to, um, I mean, I guess I, my point is I, I buy that part of it, right? Like I, it's not surprising to me that, um, that the unions were able to keep money in education. And I, I think that's a good thing personally, although I'm probably not <laughs> speaking for all of Fordham there. <laughs> I don't know. Well, but for yeah, sure. No, I mean, a, the, the, the unions, study. like you said, they play a kind of a complicated role because they lobby for more money in education, but then, of course, they may lobby against certain kind of accountability things that, that we might think are good. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. Can't we have both? I don't know. It's just a thought. Um, all right. Well, thanks a lot, Adam. Uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting study, and um, we're going to have to, I think, all keep an open mind just about the dynamics of this and, and where we're headed. Uh, all right. Um, My pleasure, guys. Yeah, thanks so much. And in that case, until next time. I'm Brandon Rhodes. And I'm David Griffith, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.